I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Brenda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. I've been meaning to interview you for a while. Uh, We've been playing uh, Zoom trivia throughout the pandemic. Yes, yes, it's been really fun. (laughs) This is one of the first times I've met you in person. It's great. Now, what kind of a scientist are you? I would say I'm a mix between an eco-hydrologist and a biogeochemist. And what on earth is an eco-hydrologist and a biogeochemist? Yes, so an eco-hydrologist is someone that studies the interaction of water and ecosystems at different scales. So for example, if I can study how a leaf releases water to the atmosphere, or a whole you know, forest can change the water budget. So a biogeochemist is someone that studies how carbon or other type of nutrients flow in different biological systems. Excellent, that sounds really interesting. In this podcast, we try to interview people and meet people who are at various stages in their career. Um, At what stage are you at? So I feel like right now I'm in a limbo because I just finished my PhD. I defended like two weeks ago. Um, Congratulations. So I I, I don't feel like I'm done yet. So I feel like I'm between a student and a researcher right now. Wonderful. Congratulations. That's a huge uh, undertaking. Um, And any plans for the future? Yeah, I think I'm going to start working. Um, I, I don't know yet if I want to stay in academia or in industry, but right now I'm going to start a job um, in, in industry as a research scientist. Wonderful. And where's that with? It's uh, the UK Center for Ecology and Hydrology. Oh. So yeah, I'm start soon. Does that mean you're moving or? Yes, I'm oh. moving. Hopefully, I'm just waiting for the visa right now, and yeah, and I'll start as soon as I get it. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, now, you just finished your PhD. Uh, what did you do your undergrad and master's in? So I did my undergrad in Peru. Um, I have a degree in chemistry from the Pontificia Universidad Católica de Peru. Um, and then I came to Canada to start a master's in geological sciences here at UBC. And as I told you, I just defended my PhD also at UBC. Wonderful. Why did you go and, like, why did you choose this for your PhD? Why did you shift focus from pure geology? Yeah, so it was very weird for me because um, since my undergraduate, I always thought that I was going to be in a lab because mm-hmm. I was doing chemistry and it was very lab intensive. Um, but then when I was doing my honors thesis, I had the opportunity to travel to the Amazon rainforest in Peru. And I got to, I had to collect some samples and take them to the lab and analyze them. Um, and it was my first time traveling to the Amazon. And that's when I realized that I really wanted to be out in the field, um, trying to connect what happens in nature versus what we see in the lab. Mm-hmm. 
So that led me to, um, once I finished my undergrad, to look for uh, masters or PhDs in that had a strong field component, basically. And yeah, eventually I started looking for, for positions that had that, and I found it at UBC. Wonderful. What kind of samples were you collecting? I was collecting some leaf litter samples, and I was analyzing how the different chemical components were appearing or disappearing with the composition. That's really cool. That'd be amazing to, to study. <laughs> I was impressed by, by the Amazon. I, I have never been there before. And just being surrounded by, by so many trees. And I, I felt like I was part of, of the whole system. And yeah, I think that really stuck with me and with my future decisions. It's funny, we don't often think of Peru as being an Amazonian country, but it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think most people feel about that Peru is with, um, just like a very Andes, mm-hmm. a lot of mountains, which is true, but we also have our share of Amazon. Excellent. Uh, you mentioned your history of field work. Um, one of my favorite parts of this interview series has been hearing about people's field work. Um, you're hearing about their field stories when things don't go right or weird things happen. Uh, do you have any that you uh, care to share? Yeah, so I think most of my stories are related to me being very clumsy. Um, I tend to trip really easily. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was doing my master's, I was working at Burn Spa, which is a wetland here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, and the soil there is like a sponge. So every time you step on it, you have to be really careful because you can you know, sink in the, in the soil, basically. Um, so that one time, I I don't know what what was I thinking that day because I was completely unprepared. I was not wearing boots. I thought that maybe it was not going to be that rainy or that it's not going to be that cold. And sometimes the, the bog is actually kind of dry, so it's okay to just go with regular shoes, mm-hmm. but not that time. Um, and then I, I, I was walking, just thinking about the samples that I had to collect. And then I stepped on this huge, I don't know, hole, and I just fell all the way to my knee. Oh my! I just, I got stuck. I couldn't, I couldn't get out of that. I had to call for. Uh, I was with other people, so they had to help me get out of that. My, my pants were completely wet. My shoes were wet. I, I, I decided to take off my shoes and socks, but the water was so cold. It was just. Yeah, like a series of bad decisions on my part to make it all the way to where we had to collect the samples. And by the time we got there, I was like freezing. I, I had no shoes. I was like, I just want to go home right now. <laughs> Maybe you should stay in academia. You'd make a great <laughs> absent-minded professor. <laughs> yeah, it was fun though. Like I don't regret it. It was just, at the moment, it's like, why? Why did I do this? But afterwards, it's just a fun story to tell about, I guess. I've certainly had days where I get to work and I think I did not dress for for the day, uh, but I've never ended up knee-deep in a hole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then another story, is, it's just a bunch of stories really, like all the times that we've gone to the field and a bee, bees or wasps decide to make their nests inside our sensor boxes, <laughs> or opening a, a box where a sensor is and finding like a bunch of little frogs or lizards 
or underneath um, um, the batteries, um, some snakes really, really mm. like it there for some reason. Um, and just every time it's like, okay, what are we going to find today? You see like a mouse, a snake, a lizard. Uh, it's just that every day is like full of surprises. And we have to be very careful sometimes. I'm sure. Yeah. Which is the worst? Well, I'm really scared of snakes because I, well, when I was doing field work in Brazil, they can be poisonous. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, I think just like big bugs, I generally don't like like cockroaches or just wasps because cockroaches, are, I just hate them mm -hmm. and wasps, I, I don't want to get stings. So yeah, little frogs, mice, they, they can they can live there as long as they don't bother anyone. But sometimes they like to bite into the cables, uh, the mice especially. So that can be really bad for, for sensors too. So, yeah, they're not welcome guests. <laughs> you mentioned your field work in Brazil just then. Yes. What were you doing there? So that was part of my PhD work. Um, and I was installing a, a tower that had different sensors to measure how much CO2 an ecosystem was emitting or absorbing, and also how much water was that ecosystem recycling. Hmm. Um, yeah, it was it was a whole adventure. And what did you find? Well, we we actually were comparing also how not only one ecosystem, but we had a, a network of these um, sensors around um, the state of Mato Grosso in Brazil. So I was comparing how different land uses and land covers um, were different or similar in terms of these carbon and water fluxes. Mm -hmm. And for example, we had a tower that was in a natural Amazon forest versus an agricultural site or a cattle pasture site. And yeah, we were, we were just seeing how these fluxes compared. And what, what did you find? Well, I found that in terms of carbon, sometimes these agricultural systems can do a good job in, in uptaking carbon. Um, it really depends on how well managed are these sites. But in terms of water, um, all of these managed sites tend to not release or not return as much water as the natural systems. So um, we like to think about these water recycling um, as to the amount of water that then later can be used for precipitation in other locations too. So it's very important for climate change or just for accounting the water budget in a region. Still, there's some optimistic news there uh, that agriculture can help uh, pull the carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, that was surprising because some of the ecosystems there, the natural ones actually, sometimes they, they don't uptake as much carbon as we thought. Oh. Um, and it's mainly because the, that region in particular is very dry, so there's a lot of water stress. And that's not um, very good. Like, plants don't really like to work under stress, mm -hmm. just like us, I guess. <laughs> um, and they just shut down when it's too dry, so they don't really take much carbon from the atmosphere. But managed ecosystems sometimes can do a little bit better because we can control when do we plant, mm -hmm. when do we not plant, and sometimes if they add a little bit of irrigation, that can help too. Yeah, farming's all about um, accelerating plant growth, so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so the, 
the soil too, like they get a lot of nutrients they need versus the natural ones. They just try to survive. They get what's there. <laughs> and what did you find with um, pasture land? Well, the same as agriculture, really. Um, really? But we, we were a bit unlucky, I guess, because when we were studying these systems, there were no cattle. Oh. Um, it was mostly just growing grasses for, for the cattle. Um, so we don't know exactly what's the effect of, of the, like if we introduce the cattle, but in terms of just the vegetation, it was similar to the agricultural sites. Good, good. And sorry, you told us the province uh, that that was in, uh, but I, I'm my Brazilian geography is bad. <laughs> yeah. Is that the north, the south, the east, the west? It's in, located in the central west of okay. Brazil. So it, it's really funny because every time I I used to tell someone that I was going to go to Brazil to do field work, they were like, yes, you're going to the beach and the sun. <laughs> and I'm like, well, not really. Um, so this state is actually landlocked. I don't have access to beaches. And I think I, I'm relatively close to the Amazon, but it's just a very, yeah, not, not, not a lot of a fun, I guess, beach party. No, not of that. It's like when you tell your friends you're coming to Canada and they imagine you're living in an igloo. And... Yes, exa exactly the same. That's the, it's the same, the same thing. Yeah, big countries are very diverse. Yeah. Uh, now I'm curious, why, why do you do your research? Why is it important? Well, um, this state in Brazil is, is actually very interesting because um, they produce a lot, a lot of the soybeans. Uh, like they have, they produce eight percent of the global soybeans. Oh wow! Um, and it also has been through extensive deforestation and land use change to be able to produce all of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there is still a lot of uncertainty in terms of how much carbon or water um, budgets are changing from this continuous deforestation and land use change. Um, and this is because there's not enough field data and because these systems are complex, there's a lot of interactions plus climate change, right? Um, sometimes, you know, it's hard to just carry a lot of sensors through the Amazon and, and it can be really expensive. Mm -hmm. So my research was actually trying to close this gap a little bit by providing more information about these understudied systems and see what's happening in the region. Excellent. <laughs> Now, you seem really passionate about your work. Um, what's the best part about it? Yeah, I think the best part is what really led me to this is what I first find out when I, when I first went to the Amazon, um, which is making these connections or between what I see um, in the field, in nature, versus what I see in the lab or, or when I analyze the data. I really like to make the connections like, oh, this ecosystem looks like this, and we're seeing this data. Isn't that cool? And like we can actually explain some of the things that are going on. So I really like that. Uh, I think I really like just like problem solving and, and finding ways to tell stories about, about the ecosystems that I'm studying. It sounds like um, it's almost like being a tourist and doing your researcher or doing your research before you go to your destination, uh, knowing the history and what's going on there and getting a deeper understanding of the environment, except in this case, 
uh, you're literally writing the book on <laughs> what's going on there and then going there and seeing it in real life. Yes, yes, yes. I, I really enjoy just just going very deep into what's happening and all the processes that are associated and the interactions. Absolutely. Now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses and days on the beach in Brazil, <laughs> um, which, of course, didn't happen. But um, what's the worst part about your work or the most challenging part? I think the, the most challenging part is very related to the best part, and it's fieldwork. Um, in Brazil, in particular, it was very challenging because that region is extremely hot. Um, there is no winter. It's just hot and rainy or hot and dry. Um, and I was not used to that kind of, of weather. Um, I grew up in, in Lima, which is very, very mild weather year-round. Year um, and just being there, having to wake up very early to go to the field and working long hours under the sun, it, it was very challenging for me because it's very physical work too. Mm -hmm. So I think that was, that was the worst part. And also sometimes because I had to travel for long periods of time to Brazil, just being away from friends and family can be, can be difficult because you feel like you're missing out sometimes on just events that happen, right? Absolutely. And weren't you there at the peak of their outbreak? Yes, yes, that was, I feel like now I can talk about it, I'm laughing almost, but being there was very, very challenging. Um, yeah, I was in Brazil when everything started and in my head I was debating what to do. Like one part of me wanted to stay in Brazil, trying to finish and just push through my PhD because that was what, where my work was. Um, another part of me was like, oh, no, maybe I should go to Canada because that's where my university is and some of my friends are, too. And another part of me was like, oh, but your family is in Peru, so you should maybe go with your family during the pandemic. Um, so I think that was just, I think I spent thinking about that like a month mm -hmm. before making a decision. Um, and in the end, I decided to stay in Brazil just for a bit longer to, to see if I could uh, you know, figure out what to do with my PhD and then eventually make it to Peru or Canada. And yeah, even even staying there during the pandemic was difficult because I, I a lot of things happened there. Um, the university that I was working with closed. So we usually were getting a lot of help from some undergraduates and some grad students too. So we didn't... Um, get their help anymore because we couldn't gather at any anywhere really um we also had to cut down the number of field visits that we were doing for the same reason it was just not uh, there were a lot of lockdowns and quarantine so we just couldn't go to the field and also people were scared at that point because that was pre-vaccines and pre-everything we, we barely knew anything about um, covid so nobody really wanted to gather um, just being like two or three people was like, okay, like this is good enough. And sometimes we had to make stops on the, on the way to the field in restaurants to just get some food. And it was sometimes like, oh, should we really stay in this place? It doesn't seem like people are taking the virus very seriously. So yeah, that was kind of like scary, but yeah, I made it. <laughs> Excellent, I'm glad you did. Yeah. <laughs> now you have, extra great stories to tell uh, about getting your PhD. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I feel like I'm, I'll never forget about about this experience. Even trying to leave Brazil was a challenge by itself, and yeah, it's it's a whole another story. <laughs> now I'm curious. Um, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities, and if so, has that affected your work? Yeah, so I am a Latina in geosciences, and as a woman of color, I am definitely underrepresented um, in, in, in my field. I, I was trying to think if that has affected my career or, or at any stage, and so far I don't think so, or maybe I just, I'm just not aware of it. Um, in that, I, I feel like I've been very fortunate um, in that sense. Um, but some something that I would say is that I sometimes do feel like I have to prove myself, mm-hmm. especially when I'm in the field because it's a very male-dominated um, space. So I feel like okay, like I have to carry the same amount of weight, I have to work just as hard, like take less breaks, or it, it's just something that I, I feel like I have to do, even if it's not the actual case, because everyone was very understanding or you know very very nice but yeah that was just something i I felt like i had that makes total sense Uh, the feeling that you can't take uh, a break or a day off or or have an off day i should say um i can understand why you would feel that way yeah um on the other hand having grown up in south america uh do you feel like that is one of the reasons why you chose to study uh the amazon Maybe, I don't know, I, being, like, when, when I did that first field visit, I didn't think that I was going to continue working in the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just something that happened, I guess, out of destiny, doing its own thing. Um, because I even learned Portuguese before traveling to Brazil, because I thought it would, it would be nice to learn another language. But I, at that point, I was not planning ever to go do research in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I just felt like that was the way things happened. Um, and of course, I really like it, and hopefully, I can continue working in just tropical ecosystems in general. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Do you feel like your field is really open and welcoming, or is it more closed off and uh, insulated? I think um, it's changing. I think it's still a bit closed, um, but I, I feel like there's a lot of people pushing for some change to make field, field work I feel like can be sometimes very exclusive because you have to um, you know not anyone not everyone can go to to the field sometimes for a number you know people that have disabilities or, or people that maybe don't feel like they will fit mm-hmm. there um, but I think mm, there have been there's a movement to make fieldwork more inclusive, more welcoming for for everyone, um, and yeah, hopefully it will continue. I don't think the change will happen overnight, and I still see that yeah, some spaces are are not, you know, just seeing the the type of people that that are there. Like I sometimes I am the only person of color in in a space, um, and that's okay for me. But I I, I can see how it can be intimidating somehow, like not having anyone that you can relate to. Um, but yeah, hopefully hopefully that will change over time. That makes sense. For someone like me, uh, being very white, um, <laughs> being in a room full of white people, I wouldn't notice um, 
maybe the, the lack of diversity, but if you aren't the only person who isn't uh, Caucasian in a room, uh, it's it can be quite obvious. Yeah, I feel like sometimes you stand out a little bit, but yeah, yeah I, I think I'm, I've gotten used to it, but I don't know, if, yeah, but I, I can definitely see how it can be intimidating for, for, for a lot of people. If anyone's listening right now and would like to follow in your footsteps, um, do something like what you're doing, uh, what advice uh, would you have for them? What background or courses or experience should they pursue? I think it's important to have a solid background in chemistry and physics. Um, I actually think I made the right choice when I decided to go for chemistry because that really helped me get the basics of you know the interactions that happen in the soil or in the plant that really helped me understand what's happening mm -hmm. um, at the micro level, I think, and also in the atmosphere, all these physical processes too. So I think having a solid background in chemistry and physics is important. Um, everything else relating to field experience or you know working with different instruments, I feel like you can learn when you actually do the, the work. Um, and if anyone wants to work in that field, they could try to get experience just going to different labs and ask around if, if they can work with different instruments in the field. But I don't think that's necessary. I think that's something you learn as you go, basically. But but the background, like the chemistry or physics background, I think it's important. Get a chemistry background and then just start saying yes. <laughs> Accumulating a, a diverse set of skills. <laughs> yes. Now, Brenda, you're very inspiring, um, but I'm curious, who inspired you as you were going through this whole process? Um, in terms of other scientists, I don't think I felt inspired by, by other people because just as we were talking about, I never felt like I could relate to anyone. I I can name like a bunch of scientists that are incredible, that are you know great scientists, but I don't necessarily feel inspired by them. Um, I mostly feel inspired by my family, but my grandfather, he has been someone who has always pushed me to study and to learn more about things. He has this like giant library in our house and. Since I was a kid, basically, I, I felt like, I, oh, I could read all of these books. Um, so I feel like that has really pushed me through, you know, all my all my studies pretty much since I was in, in you know, kindergarten or whatever. Um, and yeah, my parents have also encouraged me to keep working. And eventually, I feel like I am doing all of this because I want to, you know, help them if, if whatever I am, right? That's really sweet. Now, you work with a, a broad group of people. Um, what do you look for when you're looking for uh, a partner in the field or in, in your lab? Someone that is very curious, I would say, um, and someone that doesn't necessarily know all the information that, that, you know, that you're throwing basically to them, but that has the ability to get all that information and other things they don't know and maybe can ask about it so that they can learn more, like initiative to, to learn more about things they don't understand. I feel like that's very, very important. So that's something I, every time I see someone that is like that, I'll say, oh, you're great. I really like working with, with that type of people. Excellent. Curiosity. Yes, curiosity. <laughs> now you're just at the beginning of your career. Um, 
I want you to project to the end of your career. What do you want to be to have as your professional legacy when you retire? Um, in terms of uh, my personal goals, I would feel like I want to be recognized as someone that inspires other women or girls to pursue degrees in sciences. Um, I also want to be recognized, hopefully, as a good mentor. Um, and if I look into a bit more professional things, I, I just want to be recognized as a good scientist, someone that has that curiosity or to keep exploring, to do good science. And yeah, if, if someone, you know, talks about me, I hope they can say like, oh, do you know Brenda? And I'm like, oh yeah, she's great, like a great scientist. So if, if that happens, I, I would be just happy that, yeah, that's like accomplished. <laughs> Wonderful, that's a very mature response. I love it. <laughs> I want you to protect again. Um, Taking a look at the future, uh, where do you see your field going? I mean, most fields are changing at lightning speed, and what you start off with, um, or the, the field that you enter at the beginning of your career, can be unrecognizable by the time you retire. So, uh, yeah, where, what changes do you see coming down the pipe, and what advice do you have for young people to uh, get ahead of the curve? Um, I see the field going more towards the use of remote sensing data, just because it's you can access data all around the world from your computer, basically, anywhere in the world. Um, so I see that as you know, the technology improves, I see better images being freely available. Um, and it, it's also great for places that are understudied and cheaper in the, in the sense that you don't have to buy all of these equipment to install at one place only. Um, and it's kind of already happening, like all the studies are getting more and more, um, are using more of these remote sensing data. But I feel like there's still a lot of, of room for growth um, in that area. And to get ahead of that curve, I think it's important to know how to program, to analyze all of these data, because it's, if you're thinking about analyzing world data or, or big regions, big areas, you have to have like a good processing pipeline because otherwise it's just overwhelming the amount of data that you can get. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, learning how to program and having a, a strong, I guess, statistical analysis background are, are very, very important. So I think just getting those two are, are can give you like a, a, a good head start. Certainly setting a region as large and diverse as the Amazon. Yes. Um, there's no way that you personally could track through every square meter putting down sensors. And uh, yeah, you certainly have to work with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I would love to be able to put a sensor every meter, but of course it's, <laughs> it's not possible. Um, and I feel like right now we still need some ground data too, because for example, talking about this remote sensing data, the, the, the data that we have from satellites is currently not able to um, get exactly the what's happening in the region just because the, the models are not that great mm -hmm. due to the lack of studies. So, but in the future, who knows if that if that improves, right? With the, all the ground data that we're collecting, that could be even more interesting. Excellent. By the way, you mentioned that you'd like to keep studying tropical environments. Um, 
I didn't follow up uh, when you mentioned that you're moving to the UK. What will you be studying there? <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to be working with similar data that I worked with for my PhD. So all of these sensor and tower data that I was collecting. Um, and they also have um, kind of like a network of towers. So I'd be looking at that data and hopefully also um, kind of like processing that data and taking them to taking that data to different land surface models to make predictions about what's happening with climate change or in the future. Okay. And this is with a private firm, right? Mm -hmm. How how do they make money um, processing climate change data? Well, it's a uh, non for profit uh, organization and. I think they, they just apply to government grants. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I thought maybe there was a commercial application, but... Um, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe I, they also partner with other industries, so maybe they, that's how they get some of their, their funding to do to, to these projects. That sounds excellent. Well, Brenda, thank you. Uh, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Uh, is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before we let you go? No, I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me. It was, was great sharing a little bit about myself and the science I do. Well, you are certainly a formidable climate warrior. Um, you are helping to save our planet, uh, not only by broadening our understanding of how it's changing, but also by clearly uh, building homes for uh, bees and wasps and snakes <laughs> and mice uh, and housing um, our little uh, friends all around the planet. <laughs> I'm sure they thank you. Yeah. And I thank you too. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.